0: Hello and welcome to the Poetry Exchange. My name's Fiona Bennett.
1: And I'm Michael Schaefer. Happy New Year, Fee. (gasps) Happy New Decade. Here we are, 2020.
0: Yes. There was a big debate about whether it's 2020 when you say New Decade and all that, but I think it is. Anyway, it's January the something and here we are. Yeah. With a new episode.
1: Lovely new episode, Fee. I really like this one.
0: I know. It's very exciting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it's great. It's great. It's quite nice because you and I aren't in this one. So it's like when we hear it, yeah. you know, we're hearing it for the first time. We're going, oh, that was a good one. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. it's wonderful. So, yeah, we'll get, we'll get straight into it this month, Fee. But before we do, there is a little bit of news that uh, we thought it would be good to let everybody know. We are a charity now. We're a charitable status. I think we mentioned that in the last episode. As a result of that, we now have some trustees, and they are Alison McManus and Roy McFarlane. And Alison and Roy have both been guests on the Poetry Exchange. They've experienced uh, what it's like to be inside it, and uh, they very kindly agreed to be trustees for us. And they bring incredible qualities to, to us as individuals and in terms of their work. They're just fantastic people. Do you want to say a bit more about them?
0: I'm feeling very lucky Michael mm. that's what I'm feeling mm. I'm feeling that's just terrific two fantastic people really you know kind of just deeply in their poetry from their different fields of work as writers, mm. as educators as people in the world um, in their different ways and um, and I guess yeah people who've just really uh, recognised what we're up to in terms of inviting people to come and talk about the poem that's been a friend to them and are really interested to support that kind of, if you like, active research that we're doing, but also just the kind of the journey of that. So it's really, it's really lovely. And we're having our first meeting of trustees. So that's very exciting. There'll be paperwork involved, Michael.
1: <laughs> you know I love a bit of paperwork, Faith. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take us into the, into the conversation. So this was at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place. And as I mentioned, you and I weren't able to be there. But we did have Andrea vitsky Slot and Alistair Snell doing a fantastic job of, uh, of standing in. And you're going to hear them talking about The Fury of Overshoes by Anne Sexton, the poem that's been a friend to Laura.
2: So it would be lovely if you could read yeah. it. Yeah, to sure. It
3: really. oh, thank you. Great. Um, they sit in a row outside the kindergarten, black, red, brown, all with those brass buckles. Remember when you couldn't buckle your own overshoe or tie your own overshoe or tie your own shoe or cut your own meat and the tears running down like mud because you fell off your tricycle. Remember, big fish, when you couldn't swim and simply slipped under like a stone frog? The world wasn't yours. It belonged to the big people. Under your bed sat the wolf and he made a shadow when cars passed by at night. They made you give up your night light and your teddy and your thumb. Oh, overshoes, don't you remember me pushing you up and down in the winter snow? Oh, thumb, I want to drink. It's dark, where are the big people? When will I get there, taking giant steps all day, each day, and thinking nothing of it? Mm.
2: lovely thank you thank you
4: yeah
2: so can we ask you laura when you first met this poem
3: yeah um so i came across the very like final section of this poem uh, on tumblr which is a (laughs) social media platform yeah um and i had lots of different blogs i followed that had sections of poems and fragments um and so i saw the last bit um, maybe when I was 16 or 17. And then I didn't come back to this poem, I think, until I was uh, living in Norway during my year abroad mm. um, and I found a collection of Anne Sexton poems in the library. Um, and I suddenly, whilst I was reading through it, recognised this, this last bit, because it really struck me even at the time. Um, and then suddenly it all came together and here was the whole thing. Uh, when you <laughs> read the entire poem,
4: how did you feel then? Did it seem more complete?
3: It was surprising to me, um, the beginning, when mm. I first got to read it. Um, but it also really settled and re-emphasised everything I felt about those kind of lines, even when they were separate from the whole.
2: Can I ask you, Laura, what it was that drew you to those to those final lines, the first time you, you, you saw them?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, Where Are The Big People is obviously uh, fantastic. It's like one of the best lines I think I've ever read in poetry. I absolutely love it. And it's, um, it really resonated with me, obviously, being a teenager and then being in my early 20s of like, what am I doing? (laughs) And does anyone know what they're doing? And am I the only person that doesn't know? And um, yeah, my mum has always been very good at kind of saying to me well no one knows what they're doing especially when i have these sort of you know nightmarish teenage girl breakdowns and her sort of saying Mm -hmm. well no no one has any idea what's happening i don't know what i'm doing and i'm in my 50s Um, and so where are all the big people when will i get there Um, just resonated so deeply with that kind of sense of yeah does anyone know what they're doing and no they don't and (laughs) therefore it feels a bit better (laughs) (laughs) i'm curious on tumblr was it what was
4: the entire section was it did it start at oh, Thumb? I want to drink or did it start where's where are the big people and I, to I the think end?
3: I think it started I want to drink it's dark. oh I
4: want to drink it is dark okay yeah oh, that's what attracted
3: you yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly I thought yeah uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> mm. so you
4: sort of associated it with a time in your life where you were wondering where the big people were. Um, how did you see the big people? What, what were the big people, the mysterious big people? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I guess um, big people were pretty much anybody that seemed to have any sense of direction, I think. I think they, I sort of recognise them in, perhaps when I was 16 or 17, people that wanted to be doctors or people wanted to be lawyers and kind of already Knew what they wanted to do and had this sort of great sense of purpose, even when we were sort of muddling through our A levels and things like that. I went to a um, a grammar school in Kent, an all-girls school, and it was incredible for its um, building up of women and kind of making us into strong entrepreneurial uh, leaders of the future, as it were. And that was. Very liberating in some ways, but also very frightening (laughs) if you didn't know what it was that you wanted to do. And so I think, yeah, big people for me was literally anybody, even the people who were shorter and more petite than me at school, who seemed to have some knowledge of the fact that, of course, they had always wanted to be a midwife since they were eight years old. And that's exactly what they were going to do. And I was there um, in my English literature classes, just having a really nice time and not not really having any, any idea of what my future would look like. Do you ever
4: feel now that you are, on some days, part of the big people? No,
3: <laughs> never. <laughs> never. Big people are always somebody else. It's, okay. never, it's never me. Um, but I think that my view of what a giant step is, for example, has definitely changed over. I think I'm, I've learned to be a bit kinder to myself about what giant steps are, for example, mm. and um, what makes a great leap in your life is a little bit different now from what I think I had, I think perhaps hoped it would be when I was 16 or 17, but I think it's nice to be settling into that kind of ability to self-recognize when things, you are making big steps in your life even if it doesn't feel like you are at the time. If that makes sense? It it does
4: indeed, (laughs) even again in the 50s. Uh, (laughs) I would say that that still is is pertinent, definitely. I'm curious about the overshoes, Mm. were you surprised to find that those last lines were connected to a poem about overshoes?
3: Definitely, in (laughs) fact I didn't really know what an overshoe was, I think. I was
4: thinking, you were too young for that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, it was definitely something I had to kind of do a little bit of research into and kind of say what is this and so it didn't certainly didn't have um it didn't instantly connect in the same way that the last lines do um but i think even i mean i have a terrible memory but even i remember feeling um slightly you know that kind of incapable feeling when you're Mm. very little of being very uh frustrated at things and everything seeming so large and not being able to do the things that you want to do Mm. um and the world not belonging to you in some way i think although i don't have much of a memory of that I don't think. I think the frustrations of childhood kind of get washed out I think a little bit in the kind of victories and the nice things that happen I think mostly. I guess I'm trying to get my head around it still myself.
4: Why overshoes? Why, why is it a fury of overshoes?
3: I think because I think of overshoes as something that um, if you're five or six what what is the point of Uh, of an overshoe, why would you ever need that? Mm. I think that the practicalities of of life for a five or six year old are just so deeply frustrating and absolutely enraging when you have to waste any precious moment of playtime or of being outside in the snow or the rain in doing something practical. I mean, that's still something that I think about all the time. Mm. Um, You know, why do you have to do the things that you have to do when you really don't want to? Like when you wake up, at, wake up in the morning. You think, really, I have to get up again. Like every day, you have to get back <laughs> up again, don't you? It's unbelievable. It's like some things are outrageous. Know
2: us, I know. <laughs> Did all this yesterday.
4: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is so interesting. The, yeah. And this whole idea that the child is inside all of us is told, no, you must do it this way. You must do it that way. And. I just wonder if there anyone who feels like big people, I, I wonder, um, <laughs> really. I, surely there are. They seem to, the big people that I would associate as big people, mm. seem so confident. But are they? Are they just wearing their overshoes or <laughs> <laughs> their, their, their raincoats, their umbrellas? Um.
2: There's a tension here when it talks about um, they made you give up your night lights your teddy and your thumb,
3: Mm.
2: you know, that sort of feeling of of being forced into taking the next steps.
3: Mm. Yeah, definitely, and I think that sense of people making you do things and having not really any knowledge of why it is that they're doing it, no real actual understanding of why it is that these things have to change. Um, Yeah, there's something very, I empathise very much with the whole of this poem. And I think it's something that's almost universal in in its kind of subject matter of of that sense of things changing or sort of having to grow up in certain ways. And um, I like that um, this poem asks why or makes a bit of an injustice of it all. Mm -hmm. And kind of says, why do you have to do those things? Um, Mm -hmm. Because it's supposed to be a natural part of life. And I think that Everybody feels that sense of, well, why? Like, why does it have to go in this way? Um, Why can't I just sort of, I don't know, stagnate (laughs) in my own little universe and not have to change in practical ways? Um, Yeah. Mm
4: -hmm. When you. So the first time you came across these last lines, you were sixteen, and then mm. how old were you when you came across the entire poem? I think I was
3: twenty or twenty. Twenty. Okay.
4: Yeah. And how was the reaction to those last
3: lines? Was it different um, at, yeah. at that age? Uh-huh. Definitely. Um, so I'd moved to a foreign country yeah. to live for a year. Um, for the first time, I'd never done that before, and I can. Um, I chose Norway because um, I can't you know, rather disgustingly of me, I can't speak any other languages. And I thought they speak broken English in Norway and therefore that will be okay. Um, And I managed to learn some Norwegian along the way. But um, it was a really it was one of the best years of my life. It was fantastic. And it was also really frightening and a little bit lonely. Mm. Um, And I think definitely that sense of um, taking those giant steps. Um, I'd taken this done this big move, but to me I still didn't feel like mm. one of the big people. I still felt like I had no idea what I was doing and why was I there and <laughs> certainly from the outside, perhaps, especially to my mum, it looked like I was sort of making this giant mm. this giant step all by myself and that I decided to do it and um and really when my dad took me over there you know he took me out for dinner on my first night and I cried and said take me home even though I was 20. (laughs) I think it's so embarrassing but I just said like can you just come and can we just go home now because I just couldn't do it. Um, So yeah I obviously wasn't that much of a big person in the end anyway. Well I'm curious
4: how it changed over the year. How how did things change inside from that moment of crying at dinner and saying, "Dad, bring me home," to to coming home on your own after the the
3: time abroad? Well, initially, my dad said, "No, I'm not gonna bring you home. Stay here for two weeks, and then if you don't like it in two weeks, then you can come home." And so I spent two weeks there, and I wasn't I still wasn't really sure. And he said, "Okay, well, why don't we see in two months?" And then after that, I sort of um, had kind of forgotten we'd even had the conversation, really. And um, I guess it was those incremental passages in time where it was like, if I can get through a week, then I can get through a month. And then suddenly it wasn't getting through it at all. It was actually mm. having an amazing time and mm. not really even worrying about when I was mm. going to go home next, I think. Mm. It just changed completely in terms of... it's My relationship to that place became... I have formed that attachment and met some amazing people and therefore it never um it didn't feel like it was such a big thing anymore it just felt like mm. a sum of lots and lots of little things
4: well i mean I, here i am it just hearing you talk i'm i it just reminding me so much of, of that feeling of, mm. of uncertainty and as you move through it but then i'm back to the overshoes <laughs> maybe that's what I I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure this out, too. Maybe maybe it is the learning to tie those overshoes on and
3: and crunch through the
4: snow. And and (laughs) even though you don't want to wear them, you learn to wear them and you learn that they can actually work and keep your feet dry. Mm.
3: Yeah, (laughs) Um, exactly. I um, guess at the end of the day, it is those those things that you hate so much as a child and all this order that's in structure that's imposed on you that you think, why is it that's actually what you cling to in -hmm. some sense when you're trying to get through big changes, Mm -hmm. I suppose.
4: (laughs) Do these lines still repeat in your head then on a regular basis? You're sort of walking down the street and it starts to rain and you suddenly say... Uh, I want to drink. it is dark. Where are the big people or <laughs> yeah.
3: where are the big people is definitely <laughs> definitely something that I think about all of the time yeah. and um especially kind of um taking giant steps all day each day and thinking nothing of it. Hmm. i think i'm certainly someone and i 'm sure most people are where confidence really waxes and wanes, and sometimes I feel absolutely you know um I feel like all of my sort of skin has been peeled off, and even like the smallest amount of dust feels really painful because I'm so sen- mm. I feel so sensitive and vulnerable. And then other times I just think that I'm like practically immortal, like actually, mm. you know. And you get those really highs of emotion where you think I'm so great, and I think about those giant strides, and you know, it's really interesting the way that those things move and shift. But I could never imagine living an existence where those giant strides and that big surge of uh, confidence, or at least sort of happiness in where I am and what I'm doing, was a constant every day. Right, not thinking right. anything of it. It's still a moment where I think, oh, guys, you know, even as I'm feeling it, I sort of think, oh, I can't believe I feel like this. <laughs> it's great. I think the big yeah.
2: people are always comparing themselves with bigger people, aren't they? I think, yes, With the giants and yeah. the yeah. <laughs> cyclops of the world. Um,
4: if you were to describe this poem uh, as a friend, your friend,
3: what kind of friend would it be? Ooh, <laughs> I think that this poem is the kind of friend. It's almost a kind of like family, I suppose. I think it's the kind of um, the kind of poem where. You know, if you're lost in a big supermarket, you turn around and kind of hope that you see this person there. You know, the person that you look to for kind of recognition of it's okay or that I feel the same way. Mm. Um, It's always really nice when you have those moments with friends where you take a moment to be vulnerable and kind of take a deep breath and kind of say, I don't really know what I'm doing. And then that person goes, Oh my god, me neither. <laughs> Great. Like mm. and then you can talk about it a little bit more. That's exactly the kind of friend that I think I think mm. this this poem is. It's that kind of moment where someone takes the leap of being vulnerable first and then it becomes sharing in that vulnerability mm. and, and sort of empathy, I suppose. Mm. <laughs>
4: The Fury of Overshoes They sit in a row outside the kindergarten. Black, red, brown, all with those brass buckles. Remember when you couldn't buckle your own overshoe or tie your own overshoe or tie your own shoe or or cut your own meat and the tears running down like mud because you fell off your tricycle? Remember Big Fish When you couldn't swim and simply slipped under like a stone frog. The world wasn't yours. It belonged to the big people. Under your bed sat the wolf and he made a shadow when cars passed by at night. They made you give up your nightlight and your teddy and your thumb. Oh, overshoes, don't you remember me? Pushing you up and down in the winter snow. Oh, Thumb, I want a drink. It is dark. Where are the big people? When will I get there, taking giant steps all day, each day, and thinking nothing of it?
1: That was Andrea with the gift reading of The Fury of Overshoes, by Anne Sexton and that can be found in The Complete Poems of Anne Sexton published by Houghton Mifflin. Our thanks to Sterling Lord Literistic Agency and the Anne Sexton Estate for granting their permission and our big thanks to Laura of course and as well to the London Podcast Festival and King's Place for having us.
0: Something wonderful about that conversation I, I, I hope Uh, Everybody listening enjoyed it too. Who knows exactly what Anne Sexton's motivation or need or calling was to write that poem, but wouldn't she be so thrilled, I would think, to know that it had brought such a kind of profound and particular and lively and enlivening companionship to Laura. It really feels like a a, a conversation of companionship, that one.
1: I really like the way Laura talks about it and her, uh, you know, this thing of the big people. Mm. I don't know, I really, I really related to that. And Mm. I'm sure sure it's the kind of thing that a lot of us kind of can. It's it's a bit like that imposter syndrome idea, isn't it, somehow, that everyone Mm. else knows what they're doing and that Mm. we're going to get caught out. Mm. Yeah.
0: So for many of us I'm sure big and difficult things occurring in the world at the moment I just want to mention one fantastic initiative and occasion that's coming up which is something called Poets for the Planet and you can find out about them online they have a page uh, certainly a Facebook page I'm sure probably by now a website as well we'll put a link in the description description page wonderful initiative started off by Jacqueline Safra. Just one of these, you know, I'll just, I'm just putting it out there. Does anybody want to get on this? And, you know, people began, I think, early last year and it's built and built and they're having an event on February the 8th in London with lots of poets and all sorts of things going on. So, uh, yeah, just really anybody looking to connect and feel part of community. uh, You don't need to be a poet. You can still join Poets for the Planet to have some time with some words and thoughts That's great.
1: I'll have a look at that. I think we mentioned this in the last episode, I'm not sure, but we're going to be in uh, Manchester at the Manchester Central Library on February the 21st and February the 22nd. I've got a feeling the Saturday is already completely booked up, Faye, but there are still a few slots available on the Friday the 21st if you're in the area and you fancy coming along and sharing with us a poem that's been a friend to you. Go onto our website and you'll be able to find details of where you um, apply for a slot there.
0: And Michael, of course, we have been uh, busy working these last few weeks, not just with the Poetry Exchange, but also with Ballet Black, with this uh, exciting opportunity that we've had to curate the poems of Adrian Rich or some of the poems of Adrian Rich, to this fabulous new ballet being choreographed by Will Tuckett. And I'm mentioning it now because if that sounds like something you'd be interested to see, and or if you haven't seen the work of Ballet Black, we would heartily recommend you uh, heading to find out about them, their work. And the tour of this amazing double bill, it's one of two pieces, which is opening in the Barbican at the end of March and I know they're almost sold out there already such a following they have Uh, it then goes on a national tour of lots of different places around the country so yes head there and have a look and we'll put we'll put a link to them we
1: were lucky enough to be able to sit in on a rehearsal and watch Will create this ballet with these dancers using the poems as the soundtrack, also with the, with the solo violin. Daniel Piori playing the violin. And it's the most extraordinary thing. We'll remind you about this next month as well because it really is one not to miss. So it's great to be entering
0: the year with our first episode. We'll be back next month with another conversation. And until then, thank you for listening.